Hello and welcome to episode 25 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Stockman. Let's get right to today's guest. Today on the show, I speak with Jason Beck, curator and facility director at the British Columbia Sports Hall of Fame in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. As you might imagine, Jason is very knowledgeable about BC sports history, and I learned a lot about a place I hope to visit someday. For my overtime segment this week, I'll be exploring the career of Steve Nash, the two-time NBA MVP and one of the most dynamic players of this century. As Jason explains, Canada is becoming a basketball hotbed, and many of today's Canadian stars grew up watching Steve Nash tear it up for the Mavericks and Suns. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Today on Hallowed Ground, I'm speaking with Jason Beck, the Curator and Facility Director of the BC Sports Hall of Fame in British Columbia, Canada. Jason, how are you? I'm good, Andrew. Thanks for having me on this week. You're welcome. I would love to start by just having you give an overview of sports in British Columbia. As an American, I'm more familiar with Vancouver, honestly, than some other areas of Canada. But what are some of the sports teams and notable names and just kind of give a high level overview for us? Yeah, I mean, uh, Vancouver and BC, we're pretty lucky in, in terms of, you know, compared to the other Canadian provinces, Canadian cities, there's a lot happening here. And there's a lot of sport activity. We're home to the Vancouver Canucks uh, in the NHL, which is probably our best known team. And hockey, of course, is king in Canada, and that's no different in Vancouver. We've got some of the most passionate hockey fans on the continent, uh, in the world, really, for better and for worse, but uh, um, we, for mostly for better. Uh, we're also home to uh, the, the Vancouver Whitecaps, uh, who play in, in MLS, and they're located in BC Place Stadium, which is also the home to the BC Sports Hall of Fame. And BC Place Stadium is also home to uh, the BC Lions, our our professional uh, Canadian Football League team, which is the oldest uh, professional team in BC now. They've been in, in existence since 1954. You know, there's other major sports in, in the province. Uh, uh, rugby is very big here. Um, we host the Canada Rugby Sevens stop on the uh, Rugby Sevens tour. That's also at BC Place. What else is big here? Tennis is quite big, golf. And the nice thing about Vancouver is like on a day like today, you could be down on the water, you know, you could be out playing golf, and then you could go up to uh, the North Shore Mountains and be skiing and snowboarding um, on the, literally the same day. Mountain biking is very big on, in the North Shore. Uh, you go a little bit further north in Whistler, where um, there's lots of uh, skiing and snowboarding. There's just a lot of the, the venues from the Vancouver 2010 Olympics are still in use. So like uh, Skeleton, Bobsled, there's a bobsled track up there. Uh, and on Vancouver Island, uh, where our capital city, Victoria, is uh, that, that's kind of known as like a, a national team hub um, because of the very temperate weather out here. So a lot of teams can train year round. So um, the men's and women's national rowing teams are based in Victoria. So rowing's very big in, in BC. The men's and women's national soccer teams often train both in Vancouver and in Victoria. And both are doing very well right now. Our men's team just qualified for the World Cup for the first time since 1986. So that, that's huge news um, up here. And our women's team is the reigning Olympic gold medal, uh, Olympic champions, having won the gold medal. So they're that's never happened in Canadian history either. So soccer is like riding high right now, which is great. That's kind of my sport. So it's a, it's kind of a, a fun time to be a soccer player and a soccer fan. Big names uh, from BC, um, Steve Nash uh, is is from Victoria. Uh, Nancy Green, you know, Olympic champion in uh, in skiing. She's uh, from a, an earlier generation in the late 1960s, but still regarded as one of the great athletes BC history. We're also home to um, Terry Fox, who's probably the best known Canadian athlete, period. 
he was a, a young athlete uh, who lost his leg to cancer in the late seventies. And then at the age of I think 20 or 21, tried to run across Canada um, to raise money for cancer research. And um, um, unfortunately he made it about halfway and then the cancer returned. But the Terry Fox run still takes place today. It's raised near, nearly a billion dollars for cancer research. He's pretty much the most respected Canadian period. And uh, he's from Coquitlam, BC. So he's he's from actually near where I'm, I'm calling and talking to you from today. Uh, I mean, some of the, the best hockey players in our Hall of Fame are um, like Daniel Henrik Sedin, uh, who just retired. And but lot, yeah, lots of Canuck um, players, some other great athletes. I mean, Gareth Reese. Um, who's a great rugby player um, in the World Rugby Hall of Fame. Um, I'm missing out tons. There's so many. So you just ask me. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I have to say, I, I had never heard of Terry Fox, and that's a slight on my part. My dad had heard of him, and he's from that kind of similar generation. So can you kind of expound on his story a little bit? That's so inspiring to be such a young athlete and in his physical prime, ideally, but he has cancer and is so inspiring even now, raising all of this money in his name. Terry Fox, yeah, I mean, he was a he was a university athlete at Simon Fraser University here, here in, in Burnaby, BC, not far from Vancouver. Played on the men, the men's basketball team when he started getting pain in one of his knees, and uh, when they went to go, I guess they went to a, a checkup and they realized he had um, he had cancer in in the knee and that his leg had to be removed. Um, above the knee like the next week like it was that quick it went from like within a week not knowing you know having pain in your knee to having not having a leg so it was a, a great shock for him and his family but early on when he was recovering in hospital he was already thinking about getting involved again in in sport so he was thinking about like wheelchair basketball and he played a little bit of that and and there was even some people that were coming to him, showing him stories of disabled athletes that had competed in marathons and 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 so he was already thinking about that he began training i believe over a year before the marathon of hope and uh was working himself up to you know massive training distances every single day in port coquitlam where he grew, where he lived and, and grew up and so when he was ready um he had some some backing and some fundraising that was uh, done they had a van and they flew out to St. John's, Newfoundland. So literally the other opposite end of Canada um, on the East Coast. He dipped his, his artificial leg in the Atlantic Ocean, put some ocean water in a jug. And the idea was he was going to run across Canada, running a marathon a day until he reached Victoria and, uh, and then dip his leg in the Pacific Ocean and, and then combine the Atlantic Ocean water with the Pacific Ocean water. And it was all to raise awareness and funding for cancer research after he, you know, he saw what these young kids with cancer were, were dealing with in, in the hospital. So he ran 143 days straight, a marathon a day, 42 kilometers, you know, or 26 miles a day until he started having some pain in his chest. He was forced to stop and they realized that the cancer had returned. And uh, so he never did finish the run across Canada, but he'd ran, oh, I want to say like, and it was thousands of kilometers by that point you know, through terrible conditions. And it really started to get like unite the country. And, and uh, he was becoming certainly a celebrity. People were following his run. And then when he, he was forced to stop, it just kind of galvanized everybody even further. And then unfortunately, he actually died a year after that. So the Terry Fox run is held annually every year in September, usually. Um, nearly every school in Canada t takes part. And um, if you talk to any school kid, like any kid 
and mention the name Terry Fox in Canada, they know who you're talking about, even if they're four or five, six years old. And Terry, you know, passed away over 40 years ago now. So it's it's quite remarkable. Yeah, what a legacy. And that's that's just an incredible story. And how do you all kind of preserve his story at the BC Sports Hall of Fame? We have a gallery. Um, we have a gallery devoted uh, specifically to Terry. And he's in, he's been inducted into our hall as well. So he's honored in our Hall of Champions. And we... We have a, a good relationship with the Terry Fox Foundation and Terry's brother, Daryl, often comes and visit, visits us. Daryl's heavily involved with the, the, the Terry Fox run and the foundation today. And it's just a core part of our, our tour programming, um, education programs. Uh, Terry's story is just kind of like one of the cornerstones. It's pretty hard not to be moved and inspired by, you know, a story about a 20, a 20 year old who's lost his leg and decides, well, I'm just going to run across Canada, you know, to, to raise money, to help others. You know, it's just, I don't know what you were doing when you were 21. I certainly wasn't thinking about that. I mean, it's a pretty amazing person. Yeah. What a, what a special man. And it's, it's neat that you all have that relationship with this foundation and can uh, help tell others about his story. Speaking of the hall of champions, some other um, things the museum does. We had talked a little bit earlier about, um, an induction ceremony that you all had just had for the most recent inductees. And I think that had combined a couple of years due to COVID. So how did that event go and and how good did it feel to get some new inductees after a, a bit of a, a break there due to the pandemic? Oh, it was great to get back to doing what we do. You know, that was the first in-person induction we've had in in three years since 2019. Um, so we had two two full induction classes uh, to get through from 2020 and from 2021. And we're still technically not caught up, but we're working on that. Um, I think by next year, we'll have, uh, we'll be back up to our regular schedule. But yeah, we had most of the inductees there, um, some pretty well-known athletes uh, from BC, um, a couple of very well-known Canucks, uh, Kirk McLean and Gino Ochik were part of the, those, those two induction classes. Uh, Jeff Francis, um, who played for the Colorado Rockies, a pitcher um, was part of the 2020 class. Um, Dale Mitchell was part of the 2021 class, one of Canada's great um, soccer players, one of our, our best scorers. Um, so there was a lot of like very well-known uh, um, athletes and individuals and uh, just good to you know gather in person again and honor them in the right way. We went through a virtual induction a year ago and it just wasn't the same. So it, it, it really means something to be able to gather and, and honor these, these people uh, as a group it, it's just you can just feel the energy in the room and uh, it went very well it's a great fundraiser for us so we, we're happy to kind of get things ro- rolling again that's great that's kind of the sentiment i've had with other museums and halls of fame i've talked to where it's just so good to gather and celebrate and there's also the more business and fundraising piece but it's also really neat to honor the inductees and that's what a, a hall of fame does so um, i think that's really really cool that you guys got back to doing that and hopefully that'll continue every year I would love to talk more about like your personal background because you had um, said to me uh, before we started recording that you had kind of started out as a volunteer and just kind of a student and then you you kind of this has become your career now. So can you kind of walk us through that process and what that looked like for you? Yeah, it, it, I, I've told the story a few times. I, I thought I was going to be a farmer when I was a kid. I, I grew up on a dairy farm and a chicken farm and I loved sport but I, and I was a good athlete. Um, I played soccer in university. And it was while I was at the University of the Fraser Valley. And actually, the reason why I went to the University of the Fraser Valley was to take one course. It was Canadian sport history. And um, that was the only reason why I was there. And, and I walked onto the soccer team. Um, I was taking this course. 
and my professor said, you need to go to the BC Sports Hall of Fame to, um, to do some research on this paper that I was writing. And I went there and made an appointment and I arrived and they opened up the door to the archives and just said, okay, there you go, go find what you need. And, and I, I said, well, I think this must be some mistake. I've never been here before and I don't know where anything is. I don't know what's in your collection. Like you're, isn't there someone here to help me? And they said, no, there's not. So I, I kind of poked around that day and then and just was amazed at the, the treasures that were in the archives of the BC Sports Hall of Fame and um, went back to my professor, Robin Anderson, and, and mentioned this to him. And he said, wow, that's surprising. But he said, there's an opportunity here. Maybe we can get you in there as part of like a volunteer or maybe a practicum. And that's what ended up happening. I, I, was a, I worked a, a practicum with the hall for about six months as a volunteer. And at the end of that, they hired me as a, a summer student in the summer of 2004. And I did that uh, for the summer. They kept me on once I went back to school again. And I was working part-time as I finished my degree um, at Simon Fraser University in uh, history. And by the time I graduated, um, I'd also taken some courses in curatorship and conservation and, and um, cultural studies. And, and they hired me full-time as the curator at the BC Sports Hall. So I've been, been there in that role since 2006. And uh, I added the facility director title in 2013. So I was already kind of doing it. So <laughs> it wasn't like there was any change. I was already managing the facility as it was. So it was just kind of a recognition of that. But Loved it. I can't believe it's it's been 19 years later this year. That's awesome. Congrats on that. That's a, a really neat story. And I think it's illustrative too of like the different aspects of museum work and how you do a little bit of everything too. So can you kind of talk about that? Because I bet you have something you're best at or maybe not. Maybe it's just well distributed and you're a jack of all trades. But what is that kind of like in your role at the BC Sports Hall of Fame? I think that's what's kept me going is the fact that every day is different because there are like even just this week, I've been doing a bit of everything, but it, uh, you know, things I'm best at, I, I think writing is definitely a strength of mine, writing and researching. So I do a lot of the, the halls research and writing, uh, both online, social media, in the galleries and exhibits. Um, I do a lot of interviewing with our inductees. Um, that's, I think I've become quite a good interview actually, interviewer, actually. It's a skill of mine that I, I wasn't good at at first. But then I'm also, I've always enjoyed building and creating. So I, I do a lot of the exhibit builds and, and display builds myself. Uh, we have a workshop, which is, which is great. Do a lot of the work on site. So there's that as well. And, uh, and then just maintenance, you know, <laughs> changing light bulbs and painting and touch-ups and, and that sort of stuff. I do, do a lot of that as well. And, uh, and then managing the collection. We've got a collection of 27,000 artifacts plus another, we don't even have an accurate count on our archival documents. We're working on that, but several hundred thousand photographs, written documents, programs, that sort of thing. So it's a lot to juggle. Um, there is a lot to juggle, but it, what it means is that there's something different every day and, and being a multi-sport hall of fame, it's a different sport as well. If, like I, I've often thought if I was working in say a single sport hall, like the hockey hall of fame or the baseball hall of fame, I might get bored <laughs> because I, I love the fact that one day, you know, I could be working on something on soccer and then maybe the next day it'll be field hockey or the day after that, it'll be something different. So um, no, I, I really enjoy it. Yeah. There's been a few state or province hall of fames I've talked to. I talked to Shane at the Nova Scotia sport hall of fame on the other side of Canada. And he said something similar because it's the, multi-sport aspect and then within your own kind of job description you're doing all sorts of different things too so that's something that appeals to me about the industry as well as the different aspects and how no day is the same and 
I have definitely heard that sentiment before from other groups. I would like to talk about the actual venue that the hall is in. I think this is unique being in a large stadium. And um, I presume that you guys will be open on game days and all of that. So what what does that kind of add? Because sometimes the museum is in a standalone building. And that's great, too, for its own reasons. But what kind of value does that add that it's in a, a large stadium? We, we take it for granted because we're I've just gotten used to I work at BC Place. So I, I don't even think of it when I tell people that, but it often gets people's attention because it's it's one of the biggest stadiums in Canada. Um, it seats 55,000 people and and uh, has hosted major international events, lot, lot, lots of professional events currently uh, today. And it, it's a good thing and a bad thing um, in that uh, good thing in that we're in a sports venue. There's always lots of sports events happening. We're, we are open on on most event days. The, the bad thing is we're because we're in such a big venue, we often get lost. We're we're a massive facility, you know, 20,000 square feet. Um, so it's a very big facility. Um, but um, even despite that size, you know, you're this huge building and people often have trouble finding us. So, so it's it's not uncommon for a Vancouverite, long time, maybe a lifelong Vancouverite to visit us. And, and I often say, oh, have, have you been here before? And they said, I had no idea this was even here and lived here all my life. So we do hear that a lot, but we do get a lot of tourists that come through from around the province and, and uh, the Pacific Northwest. Uh, cruise ships come through Vancouver, so we get a lot of international tourists that way, and they often come to the stadium. It, it does draw a lot of people in huh. that way. Like, I don't know about you, but whenever I'm in a, a city um, that I've never been to before, I want to see the stadium. So uh, like even um, before COVID, one of our last trips was to San Diego, and and I had to go see where the Padres play. You know, <laughs> um, I wanted to go see that, that uh, baseball stadium. So um, a lot of people are like that. So it's it's interesting. We We like it. We definitely like it, and BC Place is a good partner for us. They've um, they've definitely supported the hall, and and I, I think see the value of us to the community as a as a nonprofit charity. Yeah, that's great. I would like to talk about another gallery besides the Terry Fox Gallery. It's the Indigenous Sport Gallery, and this is something I'll be learning about a little bit more because one of my future roommates in grad school is doing Indigenous studies while I'm doing museum studies, and he's also a big sports guy. So we've already connected over text about that. So. What are the different artifacts in the gallery and just more broadly, I know Canada um, is a home to a lot of native peoples and how does the museum honor that heritage? It's always been a priority of, of our hall to, to kind of celebrate indigenous athletes and indigenous stories and sports. And we had in the past a smaller space that we called our Aboriginal sport gallery, um, which at the time was kind of groundbreaking. I think we opened that in 2008, um, but the thought was always, we wanted a bigger space because we knew how many stories there were. And in 2015, there was a, uh, what was called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission that was held in Vancouver, uh, not Vancouver, in Canada. It was a, a way to, to right many of the wrongs that had happened uh, to Indigenous peoples through Canadian history. And there was a, a list of about 90, I think it was 90, around 90 or 100 calls to action. And one of those calls specifically called out um, museums and sports halls to better tell uh, the stories of Indigenous athletes in sports. So the the um, executive director of the Halt at the time, Alison Mailer and I, we heard that and we're like, okay, now is the time where we've, we have to do this. We have to build on the Aboriginal sport gallery. So we started working with Indigenous sport leaders and other athletes in our hall, um, built a working committee that represented various sports, various Indigenous communities around BC. And, and uh, it was a, a really collaborative process where we kind of designed the gallery and, and designed 
uh, chose what was featured and, and the stories based on, you know, the, the feedback from this group um, of about 10, 10 individuals. It's a large space. It's about 1,500 square feet. It features um, over 40 different athletes, um, at least a dozen different sports that are very popular in Indigenous communities in BC, as well as other traditional games and other events that are that are either uh, take place in indig Indigenous communities in BC or or feature athletes. And uh, it took about two years, but we opened the gallery in 2018. Um, one of the most emotional gallery openings I've ever been part of. There's about 200 people here, and I've never seen I've never seen people come into an, a space and just break down and burst into tears and weep. And it was just so emotional. It it, it just gives me goosebumps actually just thinking about it. Um, a lot of the athletes that were featured were here, um, and and some are like it was a real mix of stories. That was the thing. Some of these athletes are are current, like Carrie Price, um, who is you know, the starting goaltender for uh, the Montreal Canadiens, probably Canada's best goaltender in hockey is, is Indigenous from BC. And others were, you know, current Olympians at the time, like Spencer O'Brien, competed for Canada in snowboarding, um, or Phil Mack, who was the captain of Canada's national rugby team. And then there are other stories about, of Indigenous athletes who had been, whose stories had been kind of lost and forgotten. And we were Kind of able to to dig them up and and shine a spotlight on on them. Um, you know some great early athletes like a Harry Manson, um, who was a great soccer player in BC. And then there was other discoveries like Terry Fox is is Métis, um, which no one knew. And so that was a massive discovery. And Terry's family is really celebrating that heritage now. So the gallery did very well. It was very well received. Um, we're actually in the process of digitizing it now, so there'll be a version of it on our website. So you don't actually have to physically come to the hall. Um, the physical gallery has also won a number of awards. We won a, an Isha Award, I think it was for Best New Exhibit. And uh, the Canadian Museums Association um, uh, awarded us a, a, a Best Exhibition Award um, as well, which was unheard of for Canadian Sports Hall. That was shocking for us. We were very surprised uh, by that, but very um, honoured. And also, I think it, it hit home okay, we, we've done something, we've done something good here. That's great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And thanks for the work that went into that, because I'm sure it was very emotional. And I think that's something that people don't think about a lot with sports museums is how emotional it can be, whether you're telling a story about Terry Fox, that's really inspiring or honoring some people that their stories have been lost. And now you're able to tell them, is there a, a another story that sticks out from your time at the hall that you'd want to share? It doesn't have to be emotional, but was impactful in another way. Yeah, one that does is uh, probably the first gallery I curated at the Hall, or, or Greg Moore Gallery. Greg Moore was a, a motorsport driver, race, an IndyCar driver, raced in kart and, and IndyCar in the mid-90s and was really a prodigy, like was probably going to be the next great North American driver. He was winning kart races and he was kind of part of that group with Dario Franchitti and Adrian Fernandez, Juan Montoya. Max Pappas, who became like that generation's like great drivers in Formula One and in NASCAR and and uh, in IndyCar, um, and they all say the same thing. Greg was the best. Like Greg was better than them. He had been a prodigy all the way up, and then unfortunately he was killed in a crash on Halloween in 1999 at uh, Fontana in California um, in a race. 
and um, just, I mean, at the age of 25. So um, Greg was from Maple Ridge here in BC, in BC born and raised. And um, the family approached us about building a gallery. And so we, we took it on, worked with the previous curator, Bob Graham, who was the, the designer, and, uh, and I helped curate uh, the space. And I remember thinking at the time, I'm way too young to be doing this. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, I'm too inexperienced, but I just tried to do the best I could. And I was a fan of Greg's growing up. So it meant a lot to me personally too. And uh, working with his parents later on, they told me, um, you know, we thought you were perfect for the role because you were Greg's age. And we liked that. And I was, I, I had no idea. I always thought that was kind of a deficiency at that time but it actually I guess it worked in my favor but the gallery really gets into who he was uh, both as a person and as a driver and I think it's the best biographical gallery we have um, you can walk through the gallery and really get to know who Greg was the impact he had on people because that's the thing he was a great athlete great driver was going to be amazing if he had the opportunity to to live to that potential but it sounds like for anyone who knew him he was an even better person just just touched so many people in a positive way. So we tried to get that across and the gallery's still around. We just did an upgrade on it just before COVID. And um, it's still one of my favorite pieces of work and places in the hall. Um, there's a really good energy in that space. And his story is just another really inspiring one. Awesome. Thanks for sharing that. And that's, it's cool. The, the personal connection. And I like how you talked about the, how you were young at the time, but it really worked out to um, kind of honor him in that way. Cause the, age similarities and all that. So I think that's, that's really, really cool. What are some like educational programs that you all do at the BC Sports Hall of Fame around kids or adults and, and how do those typically work? We have what, what's called our, our Hero and Hero You program. It's a, a free program that has online um, teaching lesson plans on our website. As, and as well, there's also a, a component where we'll take honored members in our hall athletes usually and uh, go out to schools and give presentations or even bring schools to the hall and uh, have them have a presentation with an honor member just as a way to try to inspire the, the the next generation of hall of famers but also you know just try to inspire kids to be interested in sport and and um, you know maybe you're maybe you're not going to be competing at the olympics and winning a medal or being in a hall of fame but that doesn't mean you can't, you know, be interested in participate in sport for life, you know, um, whether it's competitively, recreationally. So just trying to teach some of those values about about health and fitness and sport and mm -hmm. and and wellness. And uh, we've got a, a, some great athletes that uh, that do that um, for us. And Brent Hayden is is uh, an Olympic swimmer who gives a lot of presentations for us. Um, Andrea Neal, um, one of Canada's best ever women's soccer players. Um, and the, I, mean, I think we've got about another dozen or so. So there's a, a lot of great athletes. Um, and these lesson plans are online and they're part, they, a lot of teachers and schools use them as part of their curriculum. That's awesome. I'll definitely link to that website in the show notes for the episode. I found that when I was researching um, on y'all's website. So I think it's definitely a great resource for teachers um, for sure. Are there any other um, stories you would like to share about your time or a specific athlete that you really like to talk about on a tour or write about? I've always been interested in sports writing, and um, this is a name that probably most listeners won't know. But um, when I grew up, there was really two different, three different ways that I, I really interacted and fell in love with sport. One was from 
uh, listening to the radio. Um, so I listened to a lot of Canuck broadcasts and Jim Robson was the play-by-play -play announcer and Jim's a friend now. Like I, I went to a baseball game with him a week, a week ago. So, um, and I keep in touch with him so that I pinch myself every time I have a conversation with him. He's very well known, highly respected in BC. Just one of the nicest people you'll, you'll meet. Still has that great radio voice uh, to this day. And so that, that was definitely one. Um, the other was watching a show in BC called Sports Page, which was a half hour weekly highlight show that was a phenomenon in Vancouver and BC. Like everybody watched it. And this is pre-internet days so where you had to kind of watch uh, a weekly show or a, a nightly show to get your sports highlights. You just couldn't go online. And uh, a lot of those hosts um, some of them are in our hall now some of them are, i've worked with we put together an exhibit on sports page actually a few years ago so that was a big highlight but the biggest thing for me was reading the newspaper um, i've always been fascinated by sports writers and sports writing and the guy that caught my attention was a writer a columnist of vancouver called um, jim taylor uh, who wrote for both the vancouver sun initially and then later with the province newspaper and i, I read him mostly in the province my very first interview of a new inductee at this hall of fame happened to be jim taylor and that i'll never forget when i was i'd been assigned to kind of interview the new inductees which i thought was <laughs> crazy i'm like why are you getting the new guy to do that like but shouldn't that be someone more experienced but i took it on and the top of the list was jim taylor's name and i thought let's call this number there's his phone number he'll never pick up you know there's no way and I remember dialing the number and on the first ring, uh, uh, he, he picked up and it was, hello. Like, I could still hear that, that signature way he would answer the phone. And we did an interview. Um, it was a great interview and he became a friend and we would talk every couple of weeks on the phone. And, and if we saw one another in person, um, he was a huge influence on me and helped me with my writing, helped me with my first book stuck his neck out for me with publishers to try to find a publisher actually. And, and, uh, um, was just a great, a great influence and sadly passed away, um, about three years ago now. But, um, I, I think of him just about every day and try to use some of the lessons that he, he shared about writing whenever I'm writing something. So yeah, not a name. A lot of people would know outside of, uh, BC and even, uh, even other parts of Canada, but Jim Taylor was definitely a, a big influence and someone I'll always remember baseball history in DC. I know, I'm sure it goes back a long ways. And I know there's been some minor league teams in British Columbia um, that are affiliated with MLB, but how far back does that history go in the province? Almost right to the beginning of uh, like European settlement in, in BC. There is, there's reports of like cricket and baseball and rounders being played by um, like British Navy officers in what became Victoria in like early 1800s certainly by the 1850s they were playing they were playing baseball at um, Beacon Hill Park in Victoria and baseball really took off in Victoria and Vancouver by the 1880s Victoria had a team called the Victoria Amity um, we've got like we've got material from that team in our collection um, bats mitts and balls there's this amazing grandfather like a mantle clock from 1888 that was given as a gift to one of the players and then professional ball really took off in Vancouver by the early 1900s. The Vancouver Beavers were a big team here. Um, and Bob Brown was a big part of that. He originally came from the U.S. He's a member of our hall, but he went to Notre Dame, I believe. was a professional ball player, but he, he was really what started um, professional baseball in Vancouver. He built Athletic Park 
the story is he was literally he picked out an empty lot um, in Vancouver and it was full of stumps and he literally cleared the grounds himself with sticks of dynamite just walking around sticks of dynamite in his back pocket blowing up these stumps clearing clearing this lot for what became Athletic Park um, which was the first enclosed baseball stadium in Vancouver and um, and quite a few teams played there and then later on um, was part of the Vancouver Capilanos, um, the Vancouver Mounties, who were a triple A AAA team in the Pacific Coast League uh, for quite a few years, 1950s on. Capilano Stadium was built in Vancouver in 1951, um, and that stadium still is in existence. So that ball game I mentioned go, where I went to with Jim Robson um, and Greg Douglas, who's another member of our hall uh, last week, that's still where the Vancouver Canadians play today. And they're um, they're single A now, um, an affiliate of the, of the Toronto Blue Jays, but uh, they've been a minor league team of like the, the Milwaukee Brewers, Chicago White Sox, uh, Oakland Athletics, maybe even the Royals. I'd have to look that up. Quite a few major league teams. So some great players have come through Vancouver, like Brooks Robinson played uh, in Vancouver. There's actually a, a very well-known story um, before Brooks was, um, you know, that one of the great third basemen in, in major league history. Uh, with the Orioles, he was down in Vancouver on like a conditioning stint okay. and he was running to grab a, a foul ball near one of the dugouts and he caught the ball up against um, the fencing and like hooked his bicep on a hook and was hanging there. And apparently, like they managed to get him off the the um this hook without wrecking his arm, but it was like a serious, serious injury. People were there to help him. Luckily, he got this, the, the, the care he needed and he recovered and went on to like a Hall of Fame career. But others, you know, there are others that played in Vancouver. Like Tony La Russa came through Vancouver more recently. A lot of California Angels players um, in, in the late 90s, like Rich Harden played in Vancouver, kind of drawn a blank on others. But there was quite, quite a few. Kelly Gruber, I remember, played for the Canadians for a bit uh, after playing with uh, the Blue Jays. He was part of their World Series teams. But uh, yeah, and, and more recently... BC's become known as like a hotbed for for major league players. So, like I mentioned, um, Larry Walker, you know, recently inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, probably our best known player. But others that followed were like Ryan Dempster, who played for the Cubs, uh, Jason Bay, who was a, a uh, I think he was nationally Rookie of the Year one year. Pirates, Justin Morneau, um, who'll likely be in our hall one day, um, had a great career with the Twins, was an American League MVP one year um used to kill my royals when i <laughs> i like justin Morneau a lot he was a good player yeah he was a very good player from newest minster here um in bc um gosh there's others as well but um no it's um, oh and jeff francis of course is just one of our recent inductees um pitch for the, the the rockies and is famous for being the first canadian to pitch in a world series i think that was 2007 with the rockies but uh yeah, today BC is kind of known as like a hotbed, and there's a lot of good ball players that come through and and actually make the majors. Because that wasn't the case for a long, long, long time. Uh, even though we had minor league teams here, there was very few uh, BC guys that would play uh, professionally. Um, a handful, like uh, one that's in our halls, Ted Bosefield, um, who pitched for the Red Sox uh, and a couple other teams uh, through the uh, uh, the 1960s. But um, yeah, not too many other than that. So, yeah. Another sport that people don't normally associate with Canada is basketball, but um, Steve Nash being from British Columbia, that was somebody I 
knew was from Canada, but didn't know from that province until I looked on your website. So what's the impact that he's had on the Hall of Fame and on um, just basketball in the province? Massive, uh, massive. Like it, we're we're now a, a considered like a basketball nation. Uh, there's a lot of Canadians that are in the NBA now, and, and a lot of them point to to Steve as kind of that uh, inspiration. Not many guys, you know, from Canada would even make the NBA prior to that, let alone. Uh, become like a starter and then two-time MVP. And there have been others that have followed in BC, um, like Kelly Olenek, um, who uh, played with a few teams, you know, the Celtics and the Heat. Um, and uh, his, his actually his dad was a was a trustee of our hall for for quite a while to, until recently. And uh, you know, just uh, even others, um, we just inducted um, Eli Pasquale, who was kind of Steve's Steve Nash's mentor. So he was a great player for Canada in, in the 1980s, also from Victoria. But um, yeah, basketball is a, is a, is a very underrated sport, um, especially in BC. We've got a really strong BC boys and girls high school uh, provincial tournament here. A lot of like top top players play it, go on to play university and, and professionally. Um, and I think you're going to see more and more. Uh, players between BC and Toronto because Toronto and Ontario is producing a ton of NBA players now as well. Uh, We just got to pull our national team up. That's the one thing. We've got all these great players, but we still haven't really put it all together as a national team. Um, We we have a ways to go to where we can compete with with you guys, with the Americans and, and some of the other basketball nations yeah that'll, that'll come there was a lot of young young nba talent that is from canada for sure um last question for me and one you probably get asked a lot but do you have a favorite artifact in the collection or one that you really like the most or have a, a affinity towards great question and, and that i can actually tie this back to the the famous photo um of the miracle mile which was a, a massive event that took place in vancouver in 1954 um, that was the first time two men ran the mile in under four minutes. Um, Roger Bannister from England and John Landy from Australia. And I wrote a book on that event and it's called the Miracle Mile. So uh, there's a lot of other great events that happened at that games as well. Like that's uh, one of my prized uh, pieces of memorabilia is that's signed by both Roger and John. We have in our collection um, a stopwatch that was used to time the Miracle Mile. And it's actually still stopped at Roger Bannister's winning time of three minutes, 58.8 seconds. So it's literally a moment in time that's been stopped for over 65 years now. And I have a connection to that item. I was cleaning it one day in the mid 2000s. And um, that's when I discovered that I looked at the, the clock face and I realized, wow, it's actually stopped at that winning time. And I've been hearing a lot of stories about that race and about other events from the, the 1954 British Empire and Commonwealth Games where it took place. And it just it kind of hit me. I'm like, you've got to write a book. Um, you've got to you've got to put all these stories together. Like, um, even though I had no idea what, what I was doing, I just felt like it all came together kind of in that moment. So I always whenever I am working with that stopwatch or whenever I see it on display, I always kind of think of that moment. And it's probably my 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 favorite, especially when I tell people like, hey, like first time two men ran the mile in under four minutes and there's the stopwatch that timed it. And it's still stopped at that moment. People, their eyes light up like, what? <laughs> It's pretty cool. That is really neat. And that's that's one of those items in a gallery that really sticks out and is very popular, I'm sure, because it it happened a long time ago. But people have heard of Roger Bannister. They they know 
um, that story. And um, that, yeah, that's really cool. And it's neat that you've done additional research and I'm going to have to look into your book and, and read that. Cause I think that's interesting to have multiple perspectives and different stories around that and then have the, the artifact to back that up. Not toot my own horn, but I've been told it's a good read. And, and there was a lot of interest in that race um, from the U.S., from media. Like it was featured in the first ever issue of Sports Illustrated. Even though there wasn't an American in the race, there was no Americans competing at the, at the British Empire and Commonwealth Games. But it was the mile, which was, a, you know, still is really big in American sport and American track and field. And, and there was a lot of interest. So Sports Illustrated was up here, Life Magazine, NBC broadcast that race live. Um, in 1954, there was millions of people watching that live across North America. Was that the first time he had broken four minutes or the first time two people had done it? First time two people had. He Roger had broke uh, the four minute barrier earlier that year in Oxford. That's the one I'm familiar with. Okay. Okay. And, and then John Landy broke Roger's record um, in Turku, Finland, six weeks later. And then they met for the first time on the track in Vancouver. So it was like okay. the two greatest milers in history facing one another for the first time at a time when the mile was like, the hundred meters of today, you know, it was the biggest, most popular distance. And so it was just massive. Like it was the biggest thing that happened to Vancouver and BC probably ever at that point. It, it, no one, a lot of people had never heard of the village of Vancouver, uh, but it put us on the map. Yeah. A lot of growth since then, a lot of uh, neat yeah. sports stories and artifacts preserved at the BC Sports Hall of Fame. I would love for you to talk about what, where people can find the BC Sports Hall of Fame, whether that be online or um, in person. Yeah. So if you're in Vancouver, we're located at gate A of, of BC Place Stadium. Um, we're open, we're now open five days a week. We're starting to ramp up our operations again after COVID. So we're open Wednesday through Sunday, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Um, we're hoping to be able to offer tours of the stadium again, but we're definitely offering tours of the hall and, uh, and other programming in the hall. Um, online, you can find us at uh, bcsportshall.com. And uh, you'll find uh, lots of interesting video and features, profiles of our honored members. Um, I write a monthly column called Curator's Corner, which goes in depth on, on a lot of the athletes and stories in BC sport. Um, and then we're also on social media. So I'm on, uh, on Facebook and Twitter, and, and I think we're even on Instagram and maybe even TikTok now. But uh, um, yeah, we're, we're active and, and out there. And, and uh, if you're interested in sport, interested in great stories, it's, it's definitely worth checking out. That's great. I will link to those in the show notes. And Jason, thank you so much for your time and for um, your stories. And I'll definitely um, keep in touch and maybe we can have you on again sometime. I'd, I'd love that, Andrew. Thanks so much. I'm going to have to listen to this going forward. I, I had no idea that you had a, a podcast on sports halls, but I'll, I'll definitely tune in from this point on. Thank you. Thanks for your time and uh, for your kind words. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. I grew up playing NBA Live 2004 on an old PC. It was a ton of fun, mainly because I usually played with the Dallas Mavericks. The Dirk Nowitzki-Steve Nash combo was tough to beat. I knew Steve was Canadian, but had underestimated his impact on basketball in Canada before my conversation with Jason. Here's more about the life and career of the 2016 BC Sports Hall of Fame inductee. Steve Nash was actually born in Johannesburg, South Africa on February 7, 1974, but moved to Victoria, British Columbia as a child. He holds both British and Canadian citizenship. As Steve grew up, his family was constantly playing sports together. Steve attended St. Michael's University School in Victoria and led the Blue Jaguars to a provincial championship. Side note, Blue Jaguars is an awesome name for a school mascot. Despite his success, the skinny point guard didn't attract much attention from U.S. universities, 
so he took his only scholarship offer from the Santa Clara University Broncos in Santa Clara, California. During his freshman year, Steve was part of a massive upset in the first round of March Madness. The 15-seed Santa Clara squad beat the mighty two-seed Arizona Wildcats 64-61. Steve was 8-for-10 from the free-throw line and led the team in bench points. Steve was drafted 15th overall by the Phoenix Suns in the 1996 NBA Draft, just two picks after the Hornets selected Kobe Bryant. He wasn't with the Suns for long, but he'd be back. The Suns traded him to the Dallas Mavericks in 1998, pairing him with another young foreign-born star, Dirk Nowitzki. Dallas gave Steve the opportunity to start, and he blossomed into an all-star. Steve also began representing Canada on the international stage, playing in the 2000 Sydney Olympics. Steve went back to Phoenix as a free agent after the 2003-2004 season. Paired with head coach Mike D'Antoni, the Suns began running an extremely up-tempo, fast-paced offense. It was incredibly fun to watch, and led to Steve leading the league in assists per game his first three seasons in the desert. And, oh yeah, he won back-to-back MVP awards in 2005 and 2006. Besides his passing and playmaking skills, Steve was a knockdown shooter. He's a four-time member of the 50-40-90 club, over 50% from the field, 40% from three, and 90% from the free throw line. That's the most times in NBA history being part of that exclusive club. When Steve was in his prime, the next crop of Canadian NBA stars like Andrew Wiggins and Jamal Murray were kids, surely copying his moves in their pickup games. Steve retired in 2014 after a stint with the Lakers. He is currently fourth all-time in NBA history in assists and was an eight-time All-Star. Even during his playing days, he made an impact on the people of Canada and British Columbia. He supports youth basketball, is an investor in MLS's Vancouver Whitecaps, Steve is a huge soccer guy too, and has a production company. He's currently the head coach of the Brooklyn Nets. Steve was inducted into the BC Sports Hall of Fame in 2016 and the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame in 2018. On his basketball reference page, three nicknames are listed. MV Steve, Two Time, and Nasty. Pretty much sums up his great career. You can find the BC Sports Hall of Fame online at bcsportshall.com or at BC Place Stadium in Vancouver, home of the MLS's Vancouver Whitecaps and the CFL's BC Lions. I'll link to the museum's website, Facebook page, and more info on Steve Nash in the show notes for this episode. I love making new friends north of the border. Thanks to Jason for an in-depth conversation. I hope you enjoyed episode 25 of Hallowed Ground, the Sports Museum podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, check out our archive on your podcast app for interviews with museum professionals from the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame, the Green Bay Packers Hall of Fame, and many more. Thanks in advance. Until next time, sports fans.